I now invite your attention to the second book of Kings and chapter 2, the second chapter of the second book of Kings, and at verse 14, in the middle of the verse, we read these words. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Where is the Lord God of Elijah? We are reminded by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And this is a reminder to us that we can come back even to an Old Testament passage like this, primed with expectation, knowing the Lord is well able to speak to us from these things that happened all those centuries ago. So we're not just talking about a history book, we're talking about the living Word of God. And God can make it life and power to our souls. He can speak to our hearts as the Holy Spirit applies the Word to us and to our understanding. The Lord has his own way of most remarkably sometimes fitting a text to our circumstances, applying it in the most amazing way that it fits to our present day circumstances. And I trust we should feel something of that this morning. So what a relevant question this is. To comfort our hearts, to encourage our hearts also, and to fill our, our hearts with a sense of hope and expectation from the Lord. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Now the first application I want to make is this, that <clears throat> we may be walking in a new pathway, but met with a real setback, because that's precisely where Elisha was at this stage in his experience. And sometimes we, we find that this is the case the first time we attempt something, or a new experience sometimes is the hardest experience. It may be for some children their very first day at school, maybe their, their hardest experience at school. Or it may be a new term, a new year group may be the hardest. Or maybe the first term at university and those new experiences at that place. Well, all these things are very real, aren't they, to those who may be passing through those things. It also can be the case when it comes to serving the Lord. My wife and I remember quite distinctly uh, when we began door knocking in this area, we began at this end of Castle Road on this side, and uh, the first door we knocked on when it was opened, we'd hardly had opportunity to say who we were and why we'd come before the door was decidedly slammed in our faces. But we didn't give up, thankfully, and we've knocked on hundreds of doors ever since. And that was, the, I think, the worst experience we had regarding uh, that kind of thing. And sometimes the devil uses people as tools to discourage us in the Lord's work. But we must press on. Let me tell you about John Newton's first sermon. Some of you have read this before, no doubt, that uh, after being wonderfully delivered and saved by God's grace, he became very concerned about serving the Lord in the public ministry of the gospel. And he prayed for a long, long time about this. And some of his friends who were aware of this, when he went up to Leeds, he was asked if he would preach for the first time. And he believed he'd made sufficient preparation and before the service. And he was with friends. He was very much enjoying their company. And someone suggested to him, would you like to spend some time quiet before the service? No, he said, I feel I'm sufficiently prepared. When the service came and he got to the sermon, he got about ten minutes into his first sermon and he completely dried up. He went completely blank. 
And embarrassingly, he had to ask the minister to come and finish the service. Now, that was his first attempt, and it was his worst experience of preaching. But the Lord was going to do great things through John Newton, as you well know. And what a mighty preacher he became. And up to 2,000 people flocked to hear him at Olney Parish Church week after week and year after year, even in all weathers. Well, the Lord can do great things through feeble instruments. And let us be encouraged by this, because that's what we are. At the end of the day, we are poor and weak and foolish in ourselves. But the Lord is able to pour into our empty vessels the treasures of his grace and power to do his will. So you may be faced at the very beginning of a new experience, and you may experience a setback like Elisha did here at this occasion. Let me just describe to you what was happening. Elijah in Mount Horeb heard the voice of the Lord, the still, small voice. And the Lord was recommissioning Elijah. And he was going to send him to Elisha to anoint him as prophet in his place. And he went to find him and anointed him, told him the purpose which he had come. And so he became a follower of Elijah, an understudy, you might say, and he was learning of God's dealings with Elijah. Elijah was being prepared for future service. And now in this chapter we read of them coming down to Jordan. First they went to Gilgal, then to Bethel, then to Jericho. And then the Jordan was divided by Elijah. They went across to the eastern side of Jordan. And it was there that Elijah was carried up into heaven by these fiery horses and fiery chariots, and the whirlwind carried them up into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and that was a sign that he would receive the double portion of Elijah upon his spirit and his future ministry. But Elijah was there no longer. He was on his own, seemingly, and on the wrong side of Jordan. How could he get across? Well, here was his first real difficulty. An immediate test to his faith. Was the Lord going to be with him as he was with Elijah? And so he takes the mantle, this outer garment, this loose-fitting garment that the prophets used to wear, and he folded it together, and he, he swiped the waters with the mantle, and the waters divided here and there, and Elijah went through dry foot. And this was not only a test and a proof to Elijah himself, Elisha himself, but to the younger prophets. As we told in verse 15, when the sons of the prophets, which were to view at Jericho, saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed down themselves to the ground before him. There was no doubt now in their minds. This was the true successor to their master, Elijah. And so they respected him for that. They could see the Lord was with him and he was helping him and he had anointed him, God had anointed him with his spirit. So this first trial, this first difficulty wasn't in vain, was it? And though we may come into such difficulties from time to time, with God's blessing upon us, it will not be in vain, but it will be for our spiritual good and our betterment. So when we come to such difficulties, particularly so in a new pathway, it doesn't mean necessarily we've made a mistake. If we have asked the Lord for direction and the Lord has led us this way, then we are to expect the Lord to come to our aid 
and to deliver us and open the way for us when there seems to be no way forward. You think of Hudson Taylor, when you read missionary biography, it can be very, very profitable. Because some of these men and women went, went through tremendous hardships and challenges. When you read of Hudson Taylor in 1853, going to China. Go for me to China was the words he couldn't get from his mind. and He, he had to obey. He had to go. But he experienced numerous setbacks and disappointments and difficulties before he was able ultimately to set up the China inland mission. And you think of the children of Israel at the Red Sea. This was a new path for them, wasn't it? So recently delivered from the power of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and here they were, proceeding through the wilderness, onwards to Canaan, and those faced with the Red Sea. And to their horror and astonishment, the Egyptians were pursuing after them. They'd had a change of heart. They wanted back their slave labor. And so they pursued after them, and they cried out in their distress, didn't they? It seemed utterly impossible that even the Lord could somehow deliver them. How could it happen? In their hearts, they were saying, where is the Lord? Some said it in unbelief, but there were others who said it in genuine faith to the Lord. Lord, come to our aid, come and deliver us. And the Lord did so, as you well know. He divided the Red Sea on the one hand and on the left, and they, they walked straight through the Red Sea as on dry land. The Lord intervened for their deliverance. And so it will be with us. If the Lord has brought us to a particular point in our life, a new experience may be, but there's a difficulty. The Lord will cause you to praise him ere long. Just as the Israelites, when they got to the other side, they started their heartfelt praises to the Lord. Moses and Miriam led the people in their songs of praise. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? But we move on to this troubling aspect and difficult subject of unanswered prayer. Because this is something that tries the faith of real Christians exceedingly sometimes. Maybe that's where you are at the present time. You're wrestling with this matter of unanswered prayer. And you're saying, like Elisha, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Where is he? You've read in the Bible these wonderful interventions of God, these wonderful deliverances he wrought for his people. And here you are in your present circumstances with so many trials and concerns, and you're wondering, where is the Lord in all these things? And that's the cry of your heart. Lord, come to my aid. Come and deliver me. Show thyself in my circumstances. Well, let me begin by saying this. There's a lot about prayer in the Bible. We are encouraged again and again to commit our way to God, to call upon him. It's to be the life uh, long experience of the Christian to call upon the Lord. Day by day we are to draw near to him. If we are, want to keep our souls in a healthy uh, state, we are to come to the Lord day by day to seek fresh supplies. And he gives us those supplies to go on that we might persevere. He helps us, he keeps us, he upholds us, and he gives us strength for the circumstances and experiences of life. We are proving him again and again in these things. He provides for our daily needs in so many and abundant ways. So we prove the Lord in these things day by day, don't we? And we are encouraged to go on praying to the Lord in the pathway of life. Sometimes prayers are answered almost immediately. 
That was the case for Elisha here. There seemed to be no delay. He called upon the Lord. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And uh, he followed Elijah's example, and he swiped the waters, and the waters were divided straight away. You think of Nehemiah, another almost immediate prayer. He was in the presence of Artaxerxes, the Persian king. And Nehemiah, being the cupbearer, wasn't supposed to show any emotion, but he couldn't help it. He was so distressed to hear of the destruction of the walls and the temple of Jerusalem. And he was sad in the presence of the king, and the king noticed and wanted to know why he was sad. And we find that Nehemiah, he prayed to the Lord. This was emergency prayer. This was prayer. They were silently in his heart, and the Lord wonderfully heard that prayer immediately. And he moved the king to come to his assistance, to offer aid and support for the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. And you can think of times in Israel's experience when the Lord came to their aid very, very quickly to supply their needs. But it's not always like that, as you well know. If you've been in the pathway of the Lord for some years, you will know that prayers aren't always answered so speedily. And some of our prayers will never be answered because God is wiser than our prayers. Some of us can look back and we are thankful the Lord didn't answer certain prayers because we thought it was right for us at the time. We thought that was best. We thought the Lord ought to do this for us. And we were praying to that end. And the Lord didn't answer. It didn't come to pass like we anticipated. And we can look back and we can see why the Lord was wise. The Lord was exercising his divine rights in these things and providing for us something better than perhaps we thought we wanted before. But there are things that we pray about sometimes that are perfectly legitimate. The very things that God has encouraged us to pray about in his word. So we have as it were, the support and the authority of the scriptures in praying for these very things, but still we wait. Still the answer doesn't seem to come. And we find ourselves asking the question, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And it's not because our prayers are formal or casual or half-hearted, but we found a real sense of exercise before the Lord and a sense of genuine heartfelt desire as we come to him to pray. And still, the answer hasn't come yet. And we wonder why. This is something that really perplexes our heart sometimes. Now, I don't feel to be qualified to give you all the answers to these things, but I want to suggest three uh, reasons why the Lord delays to answer the prayers of his people. First of all, it may be because he is testing our sincerity. Yes, we may be praying for someone's conversion, and we know it's the right thing to pray for. We've been encouraged in the word of God to pray, let thy kingdom come and thy will be done. We have to pray for the extension of the cause of Christ. But still the answer hasn't come. And the Lord is testing our sincerity. Why do we want this particular answer to our prayers? Is it that we might be thought someone for having prayed for this person and haven't seen those prayers answered? Is it to satisfy our own pride? Elijah was tested on Mount Carmel, wasn't he, regarding his sincerity. He had opened his mouth to the ungodly Ahab and told him that the drought would soon be over. Soon there would be rain after three and a half years. But Elijah had to go up to the top of Mount Carmel 
And he cried out to the Lord, didn't he? Earnestly and fervently, the Lord might hear and answer prayer and send the rain that he had told Ahab would come. And he sends his servant to go to look toward the sea. Go again seven times, he says. And in the end there was a little cloud, like a man's hand. It was the harbinger of the answer to the prayers of Elijah. And soon there was an abundance of rain. Here then is the God of Elijah. He hears and answers the prayers of those whose hearts are genuinely sincere before him, who commit themselves to him, who have to go again and again without giving up. And we need to watch ourselves when our prayers aren't answered, lest we become bitter, lest we become hardened, lest we start to grumble and complain against God. We can complain to God, but not to complain about God. There's a great difference, isn't there, between, between those two things. So our sincerity is being tested when the answers to our prayers don't seem to come. Furthermore, the Lord is humbling us. He is teaching us that there's no virtue in our prayers per se. Yes, we are told to pray, but simply just uttering words is not prayer. And we're not to somehow imagine there's power simply in our prayers, in and of themselves. It's because we're praying to an all-powerful God. That's why prayer is virtuous. That is why prayer is answered. So we have to be humbled sometimes as we wait and wait and wait upon the Lord. It says in Isaiah chapter 30, Therefore doth the Lord wait, that he may be gracious. Yes, the Lord is waiting. He waits to answer the prayers of his people. He keeps us waiting at the same time sometimes. At the end of the verse, verse 18, it says, Blessed are all they that wait for him. It seems a strange thing that there are two that are waiting. God is waiting and the praying person is waiting. Now why is there this waiting? Well, the middle of the verse tells us that he may be exalted because ultimately God is jealous over his own honour and glory. He must have the praise when our prayers in the end are answered. And that is why God keeps us waiting sometimes. Yes, to test our sincerity and to humble our hearts. And there's another reason Perhaps it's not often spoken about, but there's another reason why sometimes God keeps us waiting, and that is to draw out of us arguments. Now, when I use the word arguments, I don't mean arguing against God, but reasoning with the Lord on the ground of his own word and his own promises. Let me give you some examples. In the Psalm 44, verse 23, we find the psalmist saying this, Awake! Why sleepest thou, O Lord? Arise, cast us not off forever. Now, if this wasn't written in the Bible, I'd probably hesitate in even mentioning such a thing in reference to God, suggesting that he's asleep and needs to be awakened. Now, we know, of course, that this is only a figure of speech because God can neither slumber nor sleep. His eyes are always upon us and upon his people. But sometimes it's as if God is asleep as if he has hidden himself from us. And so there's this reasoning of the psalmist, Awake! Why sleepest thou, O Lord? Arise! Cast us not off forever. And the language is quite similar in Isaiah 51, 
And at verse 9, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. And then follows a, an unusual expression. Art thou not it that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? Now, whatever does that mean? Well, Rahab is not referring to a person. It's a poetic name for Egypt. And as we've just seen already, that God destroyed the Egyptians, this persecuting force who hated the people of God and hated the God of Israel. And God, as it were, cut this dragon in pieces at the Red Sea. They saw their enemies dead on the seashore. And here is Isaiah encouraging the people of God on the ground of what God has done in the past. He uses that as a powerful argument. Lord, this was the way they were delivered. The Lord came in to help them in their time of distress. Come to our aid now, just as they were delivered, come to deliver us. Now, that's just one or two of many, many verses that could be mentioned to you, especially in the Psalms, where we find the Psalmists were, I was going to say, experts in reasoning with God, pleading with God, on the ground of what he'd done in the past, and on the ground of his promises he'd made towards his people. And that's how we have to pray sometimes. Lord, I'm encouraged by these things in times past. Come and do it again for me. And so we, we earnestly plead with the Lord on the ground of these things. As Samuel Medley puts it, in him and him alone confide, still at the throne of grace abide. The eternal victory thou shalt gain, nor shalt thou seek his face in vain. Well, these things are written for our encouragement, aren't they? Here in the word of God. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? But then I want to make application of this passage in reference to the spiritual moral state of our country. I know we can sometimes become uh, almost obsessed with the present state of things, and that's, that's something we have to watch against. It's not to, as it were, overwhelm us in the sense it takes over our thinking. But nevertheless, we can't help be concerned about the, the moral landslide of our country today, the spiritual indifference, generally speaking, and uh, the way and direction things are going, and the wickedness that is showing itself, even being promoted amongst uh, little children. These things are alarming, aren't they, and cause of great concern to our hearts. Where is the Lord God of Elijah in all these things, we might say? Well, looking at it from a spiritual point of view, we would have to confess that we are living in a day of small things, a day of decline. As you think of churches up and down this country, they're fewer in number than they used to be. We're not living in the great church and chapel building era of the 1800s, neither are we living in the experience of the 18th century awakening of the 1700s, when literally tens of thousands of people gathered to hear great preachers like Whitfield and the Wesley brothers and others. Many were convicted and converted through just one sermon. We're not living in those days, are we? And so we might ask ourselves the question, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Where is the Lord in these days? Has he hidden himself from us? Our hearts may be aching regarding these things. We see the direction of travel of our nation and we'd long to see it change. We wish our nation the very best. We want the best for those who live around us. They might come to know the Lord and his saving grace. We want to see uh, great 
victories for the gospel in these days, don't we? And so we find ourselves praying earnestly regarding these things. And there'll be many over the generations, I think possibly it's true to say that all the way through the 20th century, there were godly people praying for revival, praying for better days. Men like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones encouraging people to pray concerning these things, to have special prayer meetings perhaps for revival in particular. And revival still hasn't come. Where is the Lord God of Elijah, we may be saying? Well, let me remind you, there's an answer to this question. The Lord God of Elijah is still on the throne. He will never vacate that throne. He is still ruling and reigning and working out his purposes. He is still saving his people. He may not be working to the same degree in this country as he once was, but he's working elsewhere in a very marked way. You just have to read about China. A hundred million born-again believers in China, possibly. That's believed to be a conservative estimate. The church in Iran growing at 5.2% every year, in spite of all the opposition and persecution. The Lord working by his spirit in Latin American countries. Uh, and the Lord is doing a great work. And it's far from where we are, but the Lord is working nevertheless. Now we know the Lord is well able to turn the tide, even this very day, if it was his will in this country. He could bring men and women to repentance, even this day, and turn them again to himself in vast numbers, if it was his will. Let us not forget then, the Lord is on the throne. He is not confused about the situation. He doesn't, as it were, feel any sense of perplexity by what is happening, because he is working and he's working out his purposes as he ever will. And so we are to encourage ourselves to go on praying for revival because the word of God encourages us to do that very thing. At the end of Ezekiel 36 it says, I'll yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. I will increase them with men like a flock. Or we can come to the Lord on the ground of such encouragements and ask him to perform it. He is testing us, isn't he? He is trying our faith, and we are to hold on, and we are to pray on, knowing the Lord is well able to intervene for the good of his one true church. But then I want to make final application to those of you who may be seeking the Lord and his great salvation. Of course, I want to continue on this theme uh, this evening in respect to salvation, but I want to make application of this verse here. Because... <clears throat> There may be those in the congregation this morning and your chief concern is your soul and your salvation. The Lord has made you to possess your iniquities, to use a biblical expression. You have been convicted of your sin and you feel something of the weight and the burden of your sin. And you've been praying. You're not indifferent to prayer, you've been praying. Praying earnestly the Lord might come and save you, and as yet you have no assurance whatsoever that the Lord has come to you to save you. And so you are saying effectively, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Isn't he the God who promises to answer prayer? Isn't he the God who has promised to show himself gracious to those who seek him? It may be you've been seeking him for years, and as yet you have no assurance that you are saved by God's grace. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? You may be saying, Elijah went to heaven, as this chapter tells us, and you want to go to heaven. 
You're not indifferent to these things. You want to be one of the Lord's. Let me answer this question then for you in your circumstances regarding salvation. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? First of all, he is still amongst his people. He hasn't abandoned his people. He has promised to be with his people, and there are those of us here that can testify. We know the Lord is with us. Sometimes we are especially conscious of that. He has promised, as we read in our second reading earlier, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. You can be assured of this, that the Lord is still amongst his people. And it's amongst his people the Lord delights to bless sinners. As they gather together for worship, the Lord in a special way promises to be with his people, even if there are only two or three of them. He promised to be there in the midst. So dwell amongst God's people. Joyfully gather with God's people and be encouraged when you're with God's people because they are living monuments of God's saving grace. They are standing testimonies of the Lord of what he has done for them. And if the Lord has saved them, you are to save yourself. Surely he can save me. Be encouraged by this. The Lord is amongst his people. And there are times, especially when we're conscious of this, when we see him working and saving and drawing sinners to himself. Think of the church as the womb that brings forth living souls. Souls are born again under the preaching of the everlasting gospel. So the answer to the question is, God is amongst his people. The God of Elijah is amongst his people. Furthermore, the Lord God of Elijah is in the word of God. Christ the Saviour, he's here in the scriptures. At the end of John 5, verse 39, he says this, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. This is your authority for going to the scriptures to seek to find the Saviour. Because he says, these scriptures testify of me. And if we've read our Bible from cover to cover and we can't see any of the glory of Christ in it, we've not read our Bibles aright. Go back to the word of God again. Because that's what Christ was effectively saying to the, the religious leaders of his day. They hadn't read their Bibles aright, although they thought they knew them and understood them, and thought they were in the favour of God. But because they hadn't seen Christ in the Scriptures as he really is, Christ sends them back to the Word to search it all over again. Be encouraged in this. The, the Saviour is revealed in Old Testament and New. He's there in all the Scriptures in one way or another. Be encouraged then as you pick up your Bible afresh with renewed confidence and encouragement and seek the Saviour as you read the Scriptures because he is there. And furthermore, the answer to this question, where is the Lord God of Elijah? He's in the Gospel, this gracious declaration of terms of peace for guilty, rebellious sinners. He's there in the Gospel. Well, I won't pursue that thought any further this morning, but just to add this, he's also at the throne of grace. I mentioned that God was on the throne a moment ago, which is truly the case. But remember this, it's a throne of grace. That means the free, unmerited favour of God is made known to those who come to him in prayer, who feel their need, who are looking to him for salvation. He invites us to come and obtain these things. 
It's not a case of, as it were, sitting back and somehow imagining it's all going to, as it were, fall in my lap. I need do nothing, I need say nothing, I need not pray, I need not read my Bible, I need not really take much notice of the preaching because if I'm one of God's elect, it's just going to happen to me just like that. That's fatalism. Fatalism isn't of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit stirs up our hearts that we might seek the Lord in real earnest. The Holy Spirit moves us to read the Word with new interest and understanding. The Holy Spirit moves us to give attention to the needs of our soul and ultimately directs us to Christ, who is full of compassion and full of grace to those who live to feel their need of him. Let me remind you of the hymn we sang earlier, There's a living Saviour at the Father's right hand. He ever lives to, he waits to be gracious, he ever lives to answer the prayers of those who call upon him out of a genuine sense of need for the salvation of their souls. The Saviour lives no more to die. He lives the Lord enthroned on high. He lives triumphant o'er the grave. He lives eternally to save. Amen.